Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are once again in our great country or actually around the world. We do have a following, China, Ireland, Bolivia. It's really amazing. But this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. Always happy to be with you, excited. We bring in information to you that maybe you wouldn't have heard otherwise. You certainly would not have heard a lot of the issues that we discuss. But today, I can tell you, we just have a flat-out hero. We have a young lady named Lori Burns. Uh, She has quite a background, quite a history. Uh, And if you go into it, and we will, uh, she was a survivor of human trafficking herself. But she has gone on not only to be enormously successful in the business world, but she is the founder of something called Teen Project, where they have extensive housing and drug treatment services for young ladies here in Southern California who have lived through that same experience of drug drug involvement, uh, human trafficking, and the rest. Uh, Lori's story is is just difficult. Lori, L-A-U-R-I, Burns, uh, B-U-R-N-S. But uh, she, in effect, says that she transformed her hardships into a singular purpose of saving other young ladies. And boy, that's what she did. She was raised in an abusive home. She was engaged then in the foster care system at the age of 13. And I don't know how many... uh, foster care houses that she lived in, but she was finally, this was a, a real main defect with regard to this system. On her 18th birthday, she she turned an adult, so they have, I probably gave her a birthday cake, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, and then kicked her out. She has no, no support. She turned to prostitution as a means of survival. I mean, what else could she do? Got addicted to drugs. One night, as she says, she was actually abducted, taken into the woods, and beaten by some gang members and left for dead. And some good Samaritan found her in some bushes along the side of the road, as I understand it, took her to a hospital. And there, a hospital social worker connected her not only to drug treatment, but also a six-month scholarship program for vocational training in technology. And she took those opportunities, catapulted, as I understand it, to an executive-level career in the aerospace industry, but never stopped rescuing other young ladies. I have met a couple of them. I have written, or excuse me, I've read the book that she gave me about this, Vera's Girls, V-E-R-A apostrophe S. I don't know who Vera is because uh, she's not Lori or maybe she is, but it's called Sanctuary of the Heart and it has stories of some of these young ladies that they come come directly to tell us what has happened. So I could go on and on, Lori, but, but welcome. Thank you for being here with us on All Rise. And uh, if you would, just give us in a little bit of your, uh, in my introduction, I do know that you had that abusive background and you've overcome it, but, but just tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, the time is yours. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. And that was a great overview. Thank you for that. Really catch us up. Uh, yeah, so I did grow up in the foster care system, and my father was my abuser growing up. And I found out after it was, you know, 
something that um, I want to make clear is before I even started the charity, I started taking in foster kids. So, and I think that just happened kind of, it wasn't a decision I made. It was, I was helping other women that were addicted after I got sober. And a lot of them were coming to my house with their children. So my daughter was watching their children and my daughter was young at that time. And I was sitting with the parents. And one evening, one of the parents said she can't get help because a trick had drove her there. And um, she has a child living at the crack house. So I took in her child and that's how the whole foster care thing started for me. I took in... Um, to date, I've had 41 foster children. Oh. I still have two kids that live with me today. Um, but after taking in 17 foster children, I learned that my abusive father was a foster child, mm. which was, it just set my whole mm. world on edge because in yeah. kind of a, a synchronicity of sorts, because this failing system was everything that I was seeing. And, uh, ugh. As you know, it landed me on the streets. You said, how many homes did I live in? I lived in 18 group homes by the time I was 18. Is that right? And just, yeah, shuttled from one to the next. I ran away a lot. They were very abusive. They weren't good environments for anyone, and I knew it. I would be better off on my own on the street. So uh, this is one of the things I want to overcome with my charity, the, the system that fails the kids. Let's let me stop you there for a minute because I was in juvenile court for a while. Uh, saw the foster system. We had social workers, and many of them tried. Some of them were really bureaucratic. But, but okay, you're queen for a week, Lori. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. One of the most important things that a human being can do is help to mentor children. And of course, you're doing that tremendously. And and thank you for that. But but the foster system is supposed to be a respite. It's supposed to give guidance and stability to children. But as I understand it, at least in California, you they don't are not allowed to stay in one particular foster family for longer than a certain amount of time for fear that they will get bonded. So they keep moving them around. What what could we do better in the foster system? if you were queen and could have that magic wand. I'm mixing my metaphors here. Right. So foster care and group home, two different things for people that don't know. Foster care is living with an actual family. So I have kids living in my actual house, just like my own kid in in their bedrooms, living a normal life. So in foster care, the goal is reunification, which is I think is great because what we don't understand a lot of the times, we hate the abusive parents, right? Well, not me, but a lot of people are like, oh, those bad parents. Well, guess what? Those bad parents were kids in the foster care system, too, that we failed. And now they're out on the streets doing drugs, having kids, and having, you know, it's just a whole system. So thank God the foster care system has changed, and they're working towards reunification, and the parents are getting sober, and the parents are getting therapy, and then they're reunifying, reunifying the child. And another thing people don't understand is the kids love their parents. There's a part of them that if you tell them their parents are bad, you're telling them they're bad because they are a part of that parent. So um, we try and work towards reunification in the foster care system. And I think the foster care system is leaps and bounds ahead of the group home system, which has changed in the past couple of years. Um, So the other thing is a lot of people say to me when I see this and think, oh, you're a foster mom. I always thought about being a foster mom. Well, you could just kick me at that point. Why did you think about it and you didn't do it? Did you think the kids were bad? Because I know there's a lot of bad stories out there, but the stories are mostly about bad foster parents, not bad children. In the 41 children I've had, I might have had two that I couldn't deal with that I said, okay, you got to take these back. Um, but the kids are so grateful to be here. 
so excited about having a chance at life. So that's the foster care system. I just, it's like Christmas for me. Every time they bring me a new kid, I've got two right now. I talked about the third one. They might be bringing me yesterday and I'm excited to meet her. I just, the kids do phenomenal in the home setting. In the group home setting, yeah, Jim, it used to be in the 80s. It was don't keep a kid in a group home for more than six months because they might bond. Believe it or not, they were shuffling kids from one home to another. And what it was causing is people that cannot bond a failure to bond at all levels. So a bunch of uh, reckless kids that were going to get out and just not want to get married or have any, you know, just it was broken. So they fixed that, and now they allow kids to stay in group homes longer. But if I did have a magic wand and I could change anything, it would be, you know, let me be clear here, and I might piss a few people off that are in the, that are working for the system. A foster home, I, I think it's, uh, I want to say about 20 to $30 a day, maybe $30 a day for taking care of a foster kid. So that's 800 900 a month, right, on the average month. The group home system, 13000 a month for a kid, right? The requirement to be a counselor. Now, t- today, I want to say in the past three years or so, they changed the group home model because it was failing so badly. It was failing so badly. They were just saying, this isn't working. Um, and they changed it to something called um, STRTP, made all the group homes reapply for a short-term residential treatment program. The bad part is the short-term. Like I said, they've gone back to this crazy short-term thing. Um, the good part is treatment. They are actually giving them therapy. Now, if I had a magic wand, one of the requirements for having a group home is that the counselors need to have, the counselors that are there all day with the kids need to have passed their high school or GED and be 21 years of age. Now, this, for me, is horrific. I actually had a kid I was mentoring in a group home, which I won't name which one it was, and I showed up and there was, we were having like a team decision meeting. You probably know what those are, um, Jim, but it was an internal team decision meeting where we were going over her behavior and there were probably 12 to 15 people sitting in the room. So I asked the people next to me, like, are you a counselor? Because now that I'm running a charity, like, what do you do? Oh, no, I'm just a, I'm a tech, which means they just graduated high school and they're 21. These people that are surrounding the kids all day long are not suited to deal with what's going on no. with the kids and are actually not making it better for them. No. Well, let, yeah. let me so go back. We, yeah, we would never do that. Yeah. Let me go back and, and Lori, uh, I, I know your story because I've, I've read about you, I've met you, and I, and I uh, have some information. But tell us, tell us about your background. Uh, and tell us your story, and how, which landed you into this situation where you really are a gift, uh, a gift from God. You're, you're an angel in, in so many ways, and I, I'm not the only one saying that. But tell us your story. Uh, take the time you need. Tell okay, us well, how I you was... were raised. Tell us thereafter, right. uh, because it's really an inspirational story. Thank you. I was actually raised in New York, in Long Island, New York, in a Jewish family. We went to Temple. I went to Hebrew school. I played violin. I mean, on the outside, it looked great. I had singing lessons. Um, we had everything monetarily you would want. You know, we had cleaning women. You know, probably like a lot of people live in Orange County, where we're, we're at right now. But behind the closed doors, it was very abusive. And like I said uh, a few minutes ago, I later found out my dad was in the failed foster care system, but he was sexually abusive 
on my sister, physically abusive on me, and my little sister, I have two sisters, an older and a younger, my little sister was just gone all the time. I think she was bright enough to see she didn't want any part of it. My mom was on a lot of prescription meds because she couldn't, she was being abused herself, um, more verbally and mentally, and she couldn't do anything to stop it, so I think she was just taking a lot of pills, and no one ever saw my dad's abuse. It was very hidden. Well, my dad was an airline pilot, so he would go away for a couple days at a time and come back, and my mom, at some point, just left. She said, okay, I've had it. I can't do this anymore, and she left, but with a good intention. She was going to go to California, build a life, and rescue us kids and bring us here because she had no money and no, you know, no resources. So she was going to go to California, build her life, and then send for us. But when she left, things got horrific with my dad. So he was going on airline trips. He couldn't manage babysitters. Sometimes we were left alone. Anyway, long story short, one time he goes away, and I have a friend spend the night. I wasn't supposed to have anyone over, but he's gone. And he came home early, and he did not see my friend when he came home, and he started abusing me. She saw what was going on, immediately took me to her house. We called the school counselor. They more called counselor who called me in. Well, my dad saw what was going on and knew he was going to be in trouble, so he had a handgun, a black gun that he carried all the time, even to work. I have no idea why, but he took that gun, hid it, told the authorities I had it, and I was going to kill him. Now, understand for the years prior to that, with all the abuse going on, I had been slept to psychiatrists, psychologists. I was on medications. They were giving me medication for schizophrenia. Because my school counselors and teachers couldn't understand my really bad behavior, given the fact that I had this beautiful home, so they thought I had a brain disorder. And my dad played that out to the nth degree. So I had EEGs to check on my brain every year. So by the time he took the gun and hit it and said I was out to kill him, they believed him, and I was locked in a ward for the criminally insane right after my bot mitzvah. So I was tied to a bed in a straitjacket in a mental ward. So I've got to tell you, that was my spiritual downfall. After that, I went to a group home. Um, my mom found me in that place because my dad would say, you know, you missed her. She's outside playing every time my mom would call from California. After a while, she realized I'm not there. She hired someone who found me in this place, and she got me out to my first group home, and that was in New York because she still didn't have her her resources together here in California. And that was the first time I would ever bond to another human being. These little kids in the group home became like a family for me. I had never known love and bonding like I had with these kids because the first time in my life I could trust someone. It wasn't the counselors. It was the kids. So by the time I came to California um, and my mom got enough resources, I moved to Newport Beach, California, went to Newport Harbor High School, and immediately bonded to other kids that looked like the group home kids. So before I knew it, I was arrested for burglaries and um, marijuana. And then soon after, I was awarded the court. So I started spiraling through group homes. And every time they put me in a home, I'd run from it or I'd get kicked out of it. So I was a, what you probably know, Jim, a level 14 kid. I was marked suicide risk and AWOL for trying to kill myself and running away a lot. So I had been suicidal for a long time. So I just kept on going through all these homes. And then it got really hard to place me because I was running away and trying to kill myself. So I would spend most of my time in juvenile hall. I never actually made it to a foster home because of my bad behavior. So uh, I became an expert at juvenile hall. I 
was on the honor roll in juvenile hall. I got to stay out late and eat popcorn because I'm off the floors and I was doing good in juvie. But at some point, you know, um, I went to a group home back by my home and I met a girl that looked like the group home kids and I bonded to her and I stayed there for a while and she introduced me to shooting up. I was 16 years old. And we started shooting up cocaine and cannabinol, and it helped me to block out all of the memories of what had happened, and I became addicted to it. And by the time I was 18, you know, they congratulate you, they let you out. They call it emancipation. If you Google the word emancipation, what happens from the foster care system at 18, which, thank God, they've extended it to 21. They're doing a little better than they did in the 80s. But um, what happens is it, emancipation is to set free. And truthfully, they do set you free, but you have no money, no cell phone, no bank account, no parent. The social workers are not supposed to talk to you. So what happened is we all hit the streets. And if you look at the stats, uh, 60% of human trafficking victims come from foster care. So I hit the streets, and um, I'm pregnant right after I get out of foster care. My baby goes into the foster care system because I'm working the streets. And it's literally Santa Ana, Beach Boulevard, Harbor Boulevard, day and night, shooting up all day, suicidal beyond imagination because I have nothing to live for. And, you know, you look on the street and you just think, oh, my God, drug addicts, prostitutes, how disgusting. But... I was a Jewish, not that Jewish is better, but I was like a Jewish kid in Long Island that should have had every chance at life, right? I, I was a normal kid. I lived like you live. But after the, the years, years of abuse and everything I've been through, I was molded to be out on the street. And, you know, I want to say something that's really important, and you probably learned this, um, Jim, through going through my, the book, Vera's um, Sanctuary of the Heart, the Vera's Girls. One thing that we all have in common is bad dads. And I was doing a speech for In-N-Out Burger. Um, Lindsay Snyder, who now runs In-N-Out Burger, has this mission to end human trafficking in the United States. And she, her people played this video for us of a pimp. And the pimp said, and he's a very well-known pimp, the first thing I talk to a girl about is her family. And if she had a bad dad, she's an auto-in, Right. So I'm out on the streets, and I'm trying to get approval from anyone who will tell me I'm pretty, I'm worthwhile, and you said, this is what I've sunk to. And after years of being out on the streets and now addicted to heroin, by the time the gang members picked me up that late, it was like 5 o'clock at night, I was standing by Fifth and Harbor where I had been working the streets for years. I looked like I was almost dead, and they took me to some canyon and raped me all night. And they had a gun, and I knew they were going to kill me in the morning, that I just started screaming at the top of my lungs, kill me, like at the top of my lungs, like I'm going to scream so loud, they will finally put the gun to my head, and they will kill me, and it will all be over, all the memories of my dad, all the thoughts of my kid being taken away was my everything. My daughter was everything I ever could have dreamed or hoped for, but I had no way keep her. I had no resources. And um, I screamed so loud. They got so scared that I think they beat me and left me there in fear that someone was coming. And the next thing I know, some 
huge African-American man is trying to wake me up. And I had no clothes on except for a torn, bloody shirt. So I immediately panicked to try and get away from this man because I thought he was going to beat me or rape me. And he started crying and said, please, please just let me get you to the hospital. Please just let me help you. I'm not going to hurt you. And I'm sorry for crying, Jim. It was just so emotional. I um, For the first Lori, time in a long time, I trusted Lori, someone. I'm yeah. crying, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I have tears so in my I, eyes. I trusted this man. I could see his heart through his tears, and he picked me up like I was a rag doll because I barely weighed 90 pounds, and he drove me to the hospital. I truly think the love that that man admitted to me was just so strong that when the, um, I got referred to the, the um, recovery home and I got a bed and a scholarship, I had had a trick, I don't know if you know this, that had been following me out on the streets for years. He was a Vietnam vet. And um, I had worked for the call service one night on Christmas, and I met this guy. He was a paraplegic from Vietnam, so he couldn't really have sex, but he was also an abused kid. So for years, he had been searching me out on the streets, trying to help me, and I called him, and I said, Tom, I need help. And uh, for the, he said, for the first time, he said, I will give you help, but I will not give you any money, because I had taken a lot of money from him. And that man was actually the first one to train me in computers. He was a Vietnam vet that was very, he's very involved in college and UCI and mathematics and computers. And he brought me my first computer and he taught me over the phone because there were stairs up to where I live, how to build, take apart a computer, put it back together. And that's what launched my interest in computers. I got sober start going to meetings, but the most important thing was I got therapy to start talking about what happened to me. I had never, through all those years in the group homes in juvenile hall, they never talked to me about what happened. I think, and still today, a lot of therapists don't want to trigger the kids, so they'll talk more about your day and your foster home because they don't want to trigger you and they don't want to remind you, but what they don't know is worth thinking about, and then it's filtering through everything we think about and see what happened to us, and we need to talk about it. So I think that therapy helped me, and immediately I started helping other women and children when I got out, and I rocketed, skyrocketed through the computer industry to where I had my own tech firm. So and you're, you're very that's successful. That's summary, Just, yeah. We've had a lady named Judy Lamborn as a guest here on All Rise, and she actually provides training to become a chef to people that have been human trafficked or just been released from prison or drug addicted, gone through the rehabilitation. And the recidivism rate, if you have a job, if you have that optimism, if you have a job skill, is, is you know, maybe 20% of what it would be otherwise. You have, you weren't involved in being a chef. You learned computers. And, of course, you obviously were, were innate to it and you've been very successful. But uh, getting that job skills to people where you can actually get some self-worth. It's just got to be enormously important. And we had a yeah. guiding light in the law. His name was Justice Henry Moore. He was a friend of mine. He died a while ago. But he said something I used in juvenile court all the time, and that is there's only so long a child should be forced to wait for their parents to grow up. And I, I've terminated right. parental rights before. Mm-hmm. I do it with tears in my eyes, but had to be done. But it's really important time for, for a child to be able to learn that self-worth, to be able to learn responsibility, to be able to, to bond with people. And so you have done that, Lori Burns. You have founded the Teen Project. Uh, tell us what it is. Tell us how you were able to put those things together to help 
so many of our young ladies. Yeah, so I had um, been taking as foster kids since I was 26, and I'm 57 right now, so quite a while. But Your credibility just career, went down. Just... I've seen you. You don't look that old whatsoever, so we'll, I'll give you another try. <laughs> Thank you. That's from being sober. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I was working as a, a project director at Northrop Grumman Corporation, um, and I was doing very well. I mean, it was, it was a very lucrative career, and I had a lot of kids, and it enabled me to take care of them. But I was listening to um, KFI, I think it was, and Bill Handel was talking about you can get on LegalZoom and start a charity. And through um, my work with the foster kids, I got nominated by the supervisor here in Orange County to serve on the Foster Care Advisory Board. And that is where I actually learned the statistics to... Um, all of the statistics about homelessness and kids going homeless after foster care. I never really knew that because the kids that lived in my house stayed and went to college and did whatever they were doing or went to vocational school. And when I learned those statistics, I thought about what Bill Handel had said about getting a charity going. And I called my best friend and said, let's just start a little 501c3 and let's see if we can get a couple kids through college, right? Well, it obviously blew up. Uh, we started a little charity on LegalZoom. We had $400 in donations within a couple of months. We cried all the way to what was Washington Mutual at the time. And 10 months later, we had $180,000 in our bank account. And today we have uh, 126 beds throughout Orange County and Los Angeles. And we do not provide shelter or transitional housing. We provide Joint Commission accredited drug detox, drug treatment, free vocational schooling, everything, Jim, that I got to turn my life around. Dental assistance, medical assisting. Um, we provide everything a kid will need. Um, all of the therapy, we license KDAC, which is drug and alcohol counselors, marriage family therapists. We have a medical director. We provide medically assisted detox to kids. And we recently got a grant to also open an outpatient for kids in the community that are struggling with drugs to get on medically assisted detox. So sure. we uh, are like a five-star resort, but it's free. Everything is free at our place. It's if, covered uh, by Medi-Cal, thank God. There's a oh, drug Medi-Cal pilot going on in California that allows Medi-Cal to pay for detox and drug treatment. Well, we're going to have to take a break, Lori, but, but while this is going on, mm -hmm. tell people, our audience, how they can get more information about what you're doing, about your teen project. Uh, um, there must be websites. Uh, give them that, and then we'll come back and, and resume your discussion. But how can people get more information about what you're doing, please? Okay. So, again, the name is Teen Project, like teenagers, T-E-E-N, and the website is theteenproject.com. Com. Because when I was starting the charity, I kept on talking about the Team Project thing. So we named it the Team Project because we were all used to it. So it's www.theteenproject.com. Good deal. Okay. We'll be right back. Thank you, Lori. It's just inspiring while I can uh, get some tears out of my eyes because this is so important stuff. And I told told you folks, she, she is an angel. She has turned 
terrible situations, tragic situations, into glorified ones. So I, when I when I was first talking to her this morning, I said, good morning, Lori, and it sounded like morning glory, because that's exactly uh, where she is. But we'll be back <laughs> after these few words and resume the conversation with this angelic Lori Burns and her teen project. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. So welcome back, and you've heard some messages about uh, what we are doing as libertarians, employing libertarian values. And boy, I tell you, our, our guest, Lori Burns, is employing those values, responsibility, caring, honesty, providing help to those that need it, but, but uh, with <laughs> there's, there's strings. There has to be responsibility attached. But if you can just see the value, if you can see that if I go through this, I, like Lori, can also have a good-paying job, and I also can give back to the community. But by the way, before we come back, um, I, I throw a little bit of intentional levity at this time of the, uh, of the show, and I, I remember hearing two mottos, Lori. Uh, one was a bail bondsman's motto, which was, I'll get you out of here if it takes 100 years. Okay, that would be encouraging for mm-hmm. a bail bondsman. And the mm-hmm. other one was a contractor's motto to his former client, no job is too large to start. I think we've all kind of seen people like that before, too. But, but uh, Lori, you mm-hmm. have a motto, a formula of go big or go home. Does it work? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you've got to dream big. Um, you, you've I, got to aim for the stars. And uh, so if you only hit the moon and Mars and the Milky Way, uh, all of that's fine. But, but just you've also written an autobiography, which is aptly entitled Punished for Purpose. That says lots. Punished for Purpose. How did you get involved in writing that book? Well, you know, I'm asked to speak all over the world. I've gone as far as South Africa to speak. Uh, charities ask me to speak so they can raise money for their own charity for foster care. And then uh, groups of people that need help all over the world have asked me to speak. And when I speak, 
uh, hundreds of people come up to me after and they want to thank, thank me, shake my hand, hug me, and they keep on saying, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I started thinking, God, I could reach a lot more people with a book than traveling. I'm only one person than traveling everywhere. So in 2010, I published my book, Punished for Purpose, and the reason it's named that is I thought God hated me as a child. Why else would he put a child in this situation? He must, I must have done something in a past life to deserve this. I mean, I, I must have been a witch or something. But when I started taking in the foster kids, I realized, oh, my God, he didn't hate me. He loved me. He put me on a path kind of like, if you remember Karate Kid, the whole wax on, wax off thing. Why am I doing this, Mr. Miyagi? I now realize everything I went through was so that I can accurately and purposely help the kids I'm going to rescue. So at that point, it was like, oh, my God, I'm thankful for everything, my dad, the streets, because it prepared me for what I'm doing today, which is the most amazing life. I wouldn't trade it for anyone. So, yes, I wrote the book in 2010, and guess what? The movie script got done day before yesterday. Really? Which I'm really excited about. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's wonderful. Wonderful. Right. So you have a payroll. You have the teen project. Uh, you actually do your own foster work. But how many people are on your payroll? Tell us how large an organization you have there, Lori Burns. Right. So our our payroll is about 200000 a month. We have 65 employees. And I almost died of stress when I was raising this money myself. It's just me and my friend Kelly that, that still raised the money, but we were doing private donations, corporations, and foundations for years, but now our, in, our whole, you know, uh, enchilada every month is about, well, I want to say we're 10 to $11 million a year to run right now, because uh, 2018, the Boys Town property went for sale in Orange County, and 26 charities bid on it, and we won it. So at the same time we were opening Boys Town, we already had almost 100 beds. We were opening Boys Town, and we opened a crisis center in L.A. So it just went crazy. We now have a 16-bed crisis center in L.A. for women that are in dire need of uh, psychological help. Either they're suicidal or they've overdosed or they're having a mental break due to abuse. Then we have a 74-bed drug detox and treatment center in Los Angeles called Freehab, and we name every site. And then we have a college house, which was our first house ever in Orange County, California, which we just called the Orange County College House, but we also named it after the man who saved my life, the man in the wheelchair. And then we have the property that we, we put out at the old Boys Town site, which is called Vera's Sanctuary. And that's where the book that I just wrote with all the stories of the girls that are living there that I gave to you um, when we came by your house, my foster children and I, um, that's where that originated from. Because we thought we have gotten such amazing support at Vera's Sanctuary. Starting up, very difficult because we already had so many things going on that we needed a lot of private support. And the community of Cota de Casa came together and has really held us up during this time financially. They raised $800,000 for us a couple of weeks ago, and last year, half a million dollars. And then we have um, some amazing long-term donors that have been just sending money um, ongoing, McMillan Foundation, the Evening Star Foundation, just to hold us up during this time until drug Medi-Cal set in. So, yes, it's, it's huge right now. Uh, we've got so much going on 
And it's exciting. Every time I think I've got more than I can handle, God gives us something else. So I guess not. Well, and by the way, who was Vera or who is Vera? Okay, so I was speaking in 2000, I want to say 2004, in Phoenix, Arizona. And after I was done speaking, somebody, some lady said, this man wants to talk to you. His name's Peter. And he needs to talk to you. He wants to help you. And she introduced me to Peter. Peter was a man who grew up in England, and then he, his mom, Vera, died of cancer, and he got thrown into a very bad orphanage in England. He went on to become successful and was a toy maker. He helped in uh, Lionel train sets. He made Matchbox cars. He made Polly Pockets, and he now lives in China, and he just happened to be there that day. Well, Peter started donating that day that he met me when I did my speech. I think he gave us $5,000 to help a girl go to fit him. And he kept on donating a little bit more every year. I saw him right before the Boys Town property went for sale because I see him every year. I go to a sober conference somewhere in the world. And I saw him in Canada, and he said, Lori, how's the team project going? And I said, it's going great, Peter. And he said, well, I was going to leave you money in my will, but I've decided not to. And I but, oh, my God, what did I do to piss you off? And he said, no, Lori, I decided not to leave it in my will because I want to know what you're going to do with it. So I was going to leave you a million dollars. Instead, I'm going to give it to you now, and let's do something permanent with it. Well, right after he gives me the million, I get the call from the investor that Boys Town for sale. So called, uh, not called, he's in China. I messaged Peter, and I said, there's this place called Boys Town, blah, blah, blah on Messenger, and he texted back in the morning, Spencer Tracy thinks it's a great idea. So I guess he had seen the Boys Town movie starring Spencer Tracy. Mm-hmm. So I used Peter's money to put the down payment on Boys Town. We won the bid, and I, call, I messaged Peter again. I said, I want to name it after you. And he said, no, 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 Lori, I'm anonymous. I never want to be named anything. So I thought about it. I was really suing on it because I thought, oh, my God, he's the guy that made this possible. We have to do something. So... I messaged him back and said, how about if we name it after your mom who passed away when you were a little boy, and we put it in her memory, and he was so excited. So now it's called Vera's Sanctuary after Peter's mom, and there's a beautiful picture of his mom in the lobby of one of the homes, and uh, it just goes on, you know, through through saving these girls, we are saving families, and uh, it's just been an amazing synchronicity naming it Vera's. I can't tell you how many less blessings we've had up on the hill up there. So that is why it is called the Earth Sanctuary. What a wonderful story. Um, I don't want to put Mm -hmm. you on the spot, and if you would prefer not to go into this, fine, but you have a perspective that many people, of course, do not have with regard to presently illegal drugs, drug involvement, drug addiction, drug rehabilitation. Uh, I think you're aware back Mm -hmm. in 1992 as a sitting judge, I came out here in Orange County, California, and heavily in favor of the repeal of that failed policy of drug prohibition. But I've never taken any of these illicit drugs. You have. You've overcome them. But what's your position with regard to our nation's drug policy, should it be? Uh, 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 give, us, give us some insights, if you, if you will. Well, something that I've heard you say before, and I agree with, is just taking the drug dealer off the street doesn't help because his next in charge is taking over on the business. It's supply and demand. Sure. It's a thriving business, right? So you take that guy off, you put the you put him in jail, and the next guy takes over. It's the same thing with human trafficking. You put the pimp in jail, his next guy takes over. So I, I truthfully 
think if you put someone in jail for a long period of time for, you know, dealing drugs, using drugs, it doesn't help. They just need more people to deal and use drugs with while they're in jail. I truthfully think that we should give them rehab. We should force them into rehab because even, you know, I see sometimes the kids come in and they don't want help, but they were, they just wanted to get off the streets for a while and they're really committed to going back. Even though they don't want to listen to what's being said in these rehab groups and in therapy, it seeps into their brain and it makes it harder and harder for them to go back to what they were doing. So I think if we were to couple it more with it, Addiction is a disease, and I truthfully, I truthfully believe that. I see the um, genetics of the kids that are coming in whose parents are drug addicts too, and alcoholics. So, if and they've also got very abusive backgrounds, so they need therapy. To stop trying to anesthetize themselves. So, it's my belief that if we were able to provide more support for these kids and adults that are using drugs and alcohol and get them through the issues that are driving them to use drugs and alcohol, it would make all the difference in the world. And um, I recently, you know, we recently got another grant through the Department of Healthcare Services because of the opioid epidemic with children now using opioids to start an outpatient clinic here in Orange County. And because of the COVID uh, crisis, we've been doing Zoom a lot. Well, now that we're doing Zoom, I thought, why can't we do it with the jails? So next week, we're going to start mm-hmm. offering our drug treatment in the Youth Guidance Center as a pilot program to see what happens when we take a group of girls that are in jail and put them through the treatment program, mm-hmm. which I am so excited about. Good. I hope that answered your question. Good. No, that that is. And again, it's the private sector that has the insights that would put these things together to meet a need, to address a need. Uh, I I believe, and and you're closer to this than I am, uh, that numbers of people that are using presently illicit drugs have mental illnesses, and they're taking it to kind of stave off their demons. Uh, What percent do you believe uh, of the people that are involved with drug rehabilitation uh, have mental disorders to go along with it? Yeah, I'm, when you say that, I think about our big center in Los Angeles because they all, like I said, when they're detoxing, we get them medically assisted detox, but we like to do it on a short scale. We don't uh, keep them on methadone for years or anything, but I would say 70% of the girls have co-occurring disorders, depression, mm. anxiety, bipolar, or big. So, uh, yes, there's a lot of mental illness that was caught. I, I believe it's because of the trauma they went through that they did not process and they're internalizing that actually ends up more of a mental or co-occurring disorder that now needs to be treated. And if not treated, they will go back to drugs to self-medicate. Indeed. Indeed. Um, Mm -hmm. I've I've said numbers of times here on All Rise that I, I think the most important thing in life is gratification. And it isn't love, it isn't power, it isn't success. You can get gratification from that. But I I kind of define that as the world is at least a somewhat better place because you spent some time here. Lori Burns, you must have a great amount of gratification looking at the eyes of those young ladies that you have helped, that are helping. uh, It's just got to feel really good, does it not? And thank you again for all of us. It does. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been an amazing life. 
Well, indeed. I never so, would you, have thought it would have turned out like that. <laughs> no, we never do, do we? But uh, you've had a lot of allies. You've mentioned some. That man that found you, that you say the huge African-American man that found, have you stayed in contact with him? Do you know who he is? No, he disappeared right after he dropped me at the hospital. The That's only hope bad. I have is that he sees me on a news show or something because I've done a lot of news shows about human trafficking and contact me. But he seemed so humble on that day. I don't even know if he would. You you know, my message to that is, look, the man that he took me to the hospital and then the trick that helped me, the man that trained me in computers, I I always say all you need to save a life is a nickel and a car, you know? Mm. So uh, people say, you know, I don't have the ability to save someone. No, you do. Yeah, I can tell you what, you have more hope than they have. And that little bit of hope that man had and the, um, the Vietnam vet that used to help me was enough to bridge me out of hell. And I think everyone can save a life. And I wish more people were foster parents because foster parenting is probably the most rewarding thing second to having my own child and having her become a social worker in the end and going to Columbia School of Social Work. That's my biological daughter. Second to that is these foster kids that enter my door, and I get to help and give them everything that I got. So, yes, it's rewarding, and I, you know, Jim, I get tons of letters that the girls leave in my office. They'll come and talk to me, but most often they're very intimidated by me for some reason, so they'll write me letters and slip it under my office door at the site, and I cherish those letters. The only thing above the letters under my door are the letters that come from Flower Street, the letters yes. with the jail stamp on it. The jail, yes, indeed. That's such a heart. such a hopelessness. Um, I have I have talked, become correspondents with some people in our prison system that are serving, you know, just ridiculously long periods of time in custody, and they're not a. They've never been involved with violence. They, many have been involved with with drug usage, which they've really harmed themselves. But but you must have. Amazing reunions with your young ladies, do you not, Laurie? Uh, have on a scheduled basis. For example, I I know several federal judges like, like my father, and every year his clerk would have a reunion party for former federal clerks, and it was like a family. Well, boy, you must you must have amazing reunions in your family, do you not? Well, actually, that's funny that you say that. We don't have any planned reunions. The kids drop it. Funny because the kids drop in like regular, like when your kids drop in, they need money for tires or uh, whatever. You know, they're always dropping by either the charity or the house. And I love it because when a new kid comes and they think, oh, my God, I'm going to turn 18, I'm going to be homeless because this is what's in their mind. And they see a bunch of older kids coming by for money or tires or to have dinner. Or unfortunately, we had one of my... um, favorite kids ever passed away in January from a drug overdose. And that brought tons of kids by and we went out to dinner with my kids and uh, we're just such a close knit family and we operate like a family. So anytime they want to stop by, stay over, they just plop on in. And I don't know, we haven't had any planned reunions. We just have uh, Christmas time, Mother's Day. You're missing out. You're missing out. You should, you should get the word out. Try to find one of your young ladies to be the 
the coordinator on this and uh, come up with a weekend that you spend together. It'll, uh, you heard it here first. You will, you'll always wish that uh, you'd done it earlier, but, but uh, you know, that's just it's right. a wonderful thing. Just, it's a wonderful thing. So tell us some, you, you've, you are a success story beyond measure, Lori, but tell us mm-hmm. the story of one of your young ladies, uh, that, that the background she had and then her success and how she's gone through uh, the teen project or, or you want to be your foster daughters or whatever. Uh, just give us even a little more inspiration. Tell us about one of your kids. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was going to talk about Apple, who's in the book, but I might tell you about Janelle who actually came to our first teen project house. Uh, Janelle was in a foster home with her little sister when she called me, and it was an abusive foster home. And she was working at Saddleback Hospital as she had went through the EMT program, the EMT program. So um, she was working in the emergency room as an intern at the time, and I met her for something to eat at the local mall, and she told me we're in a very bad foster home, um, she was having seizures. She had um, trauma-induced seizures. And I immediately offered help. The Team Project home was just being built. It was our first house to be built in Lake Forest. It was the college house. Her and her sister moved in with me. I think it was the next day. And she was going to school at Saddleback and had 17 seizures in one day. They rushed her from her class to the hospital because of trauma. Mm. and. Oh, my God, this little girl, when she was, the reason she got into the foster care system is her parents were very young. They were partying, and she was walking out in the street alone and got hit by a drunk driver. Mm. She was rushed to Shock Hospital in Orange. Her parents didn't come to get her because they were so afraid of what would happen to them. She stayed a year on life support in, in Chalk. And she said that the first time she experienced love in her life was the doctors and the nurses at Chalk Hospital. Mm -hmm. So she decided as a little girl, she wanted to be the person at the hospital that would rescue the girl. So she came into our program. She lived in my personal house for a while. She went through my program. She continued in school. And she went on to get a scholarship for college. And she decided through this whole thing to go more after. And what you were just speaking to, Jim, is to be more of a psychiatrist to to help the girls on the other end that are having the mental disorders and that are driving them down into uh, addiction and prostitution and being homeless. So she continued on in school. And when we started the Vera Sanctuary program, she actually worked with us. She came on as an intern social worker intern, and she's working with the girls to save the new girls that are going through now. She's still continuing college, but she is one of those girls that I look at and say, okay, she turned it all around. And I also want to talk for just one second about Venice Beach. Venice Beach, if you don't know, is littered with homeless people, right? That's a whole other thing. But we started a drop-in center there, and when we started it, a little girl named Jordan walked in on the day that we still had the ribbon up for the ribbon cutting. We hadn't opened yet. And she said, I'm sleeping in a storefront. I got out of foster care. I was 18, somewhere back east. It was so cold. I hitchhiked here, and I've been sleeping in a storefront. Can you please help me? So Jordan was one of the first to go into the college house. Well, I got to tell you, Jordan went through school at our college house, went back home, got married, and adopted five children. 
Good gracious. So Jordan is now married. Her and her wife, she's gay, have adopted five children, and they are siblings that, which all of these five kids are related. The mom that was addicted to drugs just kept on having kids, and every time she'd have another one, Jordan and her wife took them in. Wow. Wow. It just brings... Yeah, and we're... Yeah, we were founded, that was 2011, so Jordan and her wife are not very old. Like, they're probably not even 30 right now, and they've got five adopted. <laughs> so, uh, one, yeah. I told you that I had been in a position on juvenile court to terminate parental rights, and one time I did that of a sibling set of five children. And I looked at the social worker, wow. and it's just inhuman to separate siblings. How will we ever find couple to take five children said you know it may it may take a while but we will and sure enough i saw that social worker maybe four or five six months later remember that sibling set of five yes we found some people that would take talk about changing your life all of a sudden going from what two children to seven or zero to five that'd get your attention but but what a marvelous thing to do and and uh, uh again tell us you, I'm sure that many of our people in the audience are just as affected by this as I am. Uh, how can we help? Uh, I volunteer personally. Uh, it cost me some money when I when you came over before, and it'll cost me some more before long. But uh, anything I can do to assist you, I'm anxious to. You're doing God's work in, in so many ways. Uh, what can other people do if they want to assist you, donate, volunteer? Uh, how can they get in touch with you to uh, carry on in your work? Wonderful question. Okay, so I said last year the community came together and raised a half a million dollars to take care of the girls. This year, a couple of weeks ago, there is $800,000, which I put all of my girls currently through vocational training, medical assisting, vet tech, beauty school, whatever they want to do. So the girls that I have right now, their lives have been saved. They're going to college. One of the things we don't have is cars. Someone donated her daughter's car about a month ago, and we had the gift of awarding that to one of the girls that were, was doing well, and we videotaped it. Here's the keys to your brand new car. And not only can she drive herself, but she can drive all the other girls to school and back that are assigned to that same school. So if you have an old car that you're going to sell for $1,000, $2,000, please think of donating it to us because the girls need transportation. It's the one thing we have left to take care of. Also, People call me all the time and they say, how can I help? And I say, what do you do? Because if you're an accountant, you can teach them how to balance their bank account when they get it because we don't want a lot of bouncing checks. Uh, You can teach them how to save, that if they start saving $50 a month now while they're young, they will have enough money to retire on, but they have to be consistent with it. If you sew, you can teach the girls to sew. We've had mamas over there and we have a grandma group that teaches them to cook. So whatever you have, whatever you do, you can bring to the girls. Also, on our website, on the donate page, you can donate a little bit every month, whether it's $10, $20, $50. Those recurring donations are something that we can count on because girls come in from the street with nothing. They don't have a bag. They haven't been carrying a bag on the street. So they have one pair of underwear, one bra, one pair of pants, and a shirt. And for every girl that comes in, I don't... I would rather take them to Target and let them know they're valuable enough to have their own underwear or bra than to give them someone else's. So we would rather have money donated where we can get a Target gift card and let them go pick fresh underwear that they don't have to wear someone else's, right? And we have a clothing store on site, uh, brand new clothing, 
Yeah, where the girls can walk into the store. It's donated from Olivia's Boutique in Rancho Santa Margarita. She gives us all brand new clothes. So you walk in, it's like a Laguna Beach boutique. Oh, it's just great. And the girls pick all their new clothes. <laughs> so anything you have, Lori, and you're, then the you're girls wonderful. in L.A. I, take clothes. I introduced you as being an angel. That's the way we will close our session. But but thank you on behalf thank of our you. country, our community, all of these yeah. young ladies, all of the bad fathers. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. There, there you have it, folks. And get her book, Punished for thank Purpose. You. Strange title, but but uh, certainly accurate. And God is working wonderful things through Ms. Lori Burns. I think we would all agree. Uh, I'm going to donate to you uh, uh, every month. I'm going to get on your website, theteenproject.com, oh, awesome. and I will donate every, every month, and you can count on that forever. So there you have it, folks. Libertarian values, honest, good, hardworking, dedicated, loving people in action. There's a lot of bad things things going on in the world. We know that, but there are a lot of good things too. And we bring quite a few of those here to you every Friday on All Rise. Tune in next Friday. We'll have some more stories, some more more issues to discuss. And I'll have to search the bushes high and low to find somebody like Lori Burns again, but we'll keep trying. Lori, thank you so much again. And we close by just saying what I always do. Life is good. And why do I say that? Because it truly is. See you next week. And thank you. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen by balls that help us control. We are Americans all. Strengthen by balls.